Welcome to The Skinny. I'm your host, Shazan. So many things happening all at the same time. Incredible conversations, communities being built, dreams being realized, and movements ignited and reignited. So much to learn and even more to experience. This season on The Skinny, we dig deeper, cutting the fat and getting right down to the nitty gritty on topics that impact our lives. I'm so excited to highlight amazing stories and facilitate impassioned voices and conversations, eager to share, learn, grow, and evolve with you into even more amazing, enlightened, and empowered souls. So come on, honey bunnies, let's do this. It's showtime. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Skinny Witch Shazan. I am so extremely excited that you are here. If this is your first time, welcome. And if you are returning, welcome as well. <laughs> it is all love. And um, this amazing community is continuing to grow. And I'm beyond words most times because I'm so grateful. And I have had the opportunity to meet so many incredible people. And I love bringing these incredible people to you so that you can also be filled with their light, their inspiration, motivation, their story, and and continue to blossom and use it how you need to, to evolve in your own life. So with me on the show today is a boss lady, fashion authority, entrepreneur, mother, CEO, and founder of the Fix Collective, the anti-blend sustainability brand, the brilliant Daisy Hutton. Hi, Daisy. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Shazan. I'm so excited. Thank you for having me. Oh, this is my pleasure. I'm so excited that I'm going to be able to speak with you. So we will jump right in. So your story is super interesting. You were initially heading into medicine, and then you realized your true passion was in fashion. (laughs) First, what were you studying in pre-med? And... What was that pivotal moment for you that you decided to kind of flip the switch and heed to your true calling in fashion? Oh, my goodness. You know, it's funny. I guess it's kind of a long story, but I grew up um, as a child of immigrants. Mm -hmm. And being in the Asian community, there is just kind of a a story that we share. Somehow, as, as a child of Asian immigrants, there's a path that's now become a little stereotypical, but there, there is a kind of presumed path that we all become doctors or engineers or something. Mm-hmm. So um, as a child, yeah, it was interesting because I don't think I, there was never a time I ever considered doing anything else. I thought I was going to be either be a veterinarian or a pediatrician, but whatever I did was going to be in medicine. So my mm-hmm. entire childhood, I worked hard in school. I studied. I did all the things I was supposed to do. I took five years of Latin. Um, and I honestly enjoyed that journey, but at some point in college, I, I, I went to Duke and, you know, because it was a great pre-med program, I was, I had selected my major. I was going to major in biology. I was minoring in chemistry. I was doing it all. And somewhere in the middle of my sophomore year, I think I just, it just, it hit me that it was not, I wasn't doing this because it really was my passion. I was doing this because it had been kind of a long seed planted in my head. Mm-hmm. But, and, and this is going to sound silly, but I quickly realized after two years of studying in college and pulling all-nighters that this was not the lifestyle for me. <laughs> So much that I didn't think medicine was interesting, but I needed to sleep. 
And I was already so tired after three years of college of cramming. I know that if I had gone into that residency lifestyle of having to full like 48 hour shifts learning, like I would have killed somebody. (laughs) I would not have been happy and I would not have been fulfilling anybody's dream. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, you know, having been almost through my sophomore year, I was already two years into this. And I felt like at that point I was really lost and I did not know. Uh, what I was going to do. I was, again, just coming off of over a decade of thinking that that was the only thing I was ever going to do, and now feeling quite lost with no plans. So I just finished out my undergrad anyway. I still got that degree. I took every science and math credit I needed to take, and I graduated just having no clue what I was going to do. Wow. So you graduated, and you have your degree in bio and chem. Did you at any point when you were thinking, okay, I don't want to do this? Did you ever talk to your parents about it, your family about how you were feeling? You know, I think I told them that I was not going to go to medical school and they were okay with that. They just Mm -hmm. wanted me to have some sort of plan, right? Right. graduate with a lot of college debt and have no plan. Mm -hmm. Um, And for me, I don't know, I did not, I never, um, I really didn't know what I was going to do. So Mm -hmm. the the crazy side story then was that I was in a sorority in college, and Mm -hmm. I happened to be very involved with that. And luckily, the sorority offered me a job where I could travel for them as a consultant and Mm -hmm. visit different sorority chapters. I don't think I told you any of this in the bio. No, <laughs> this I love this. I love it. That's fine. <laughs> so luckily, I, yeah, it was only a one-year job, but it was kind of that perfect thing to fill in the gap for a year. Mm-hmm. So myself and nine other women from my sorority from all around the country, we got to visit different chapters. I was in Delta Gamma. I don't know if that's relevant. I was just about to, I was just about to ask you what sorority was it? Yes. So we have over a hundred chapters through America and Canada. And um, so in 2000, I got to visit, I don't know how many, we were all over, but my job was to kind of fly from one chapter to another chapter. And we would, we would just visit with these women and kind Mm -hmm. of guide them on the right path. But it also was really eye-opening for me because it was on that journey that I got to visit all these other college campuses and kind Mm. of experience a different thing. Because again, going to Duke, most students there are kind of on very similar paths. You know, they're they're not going to be in engineering or lawyers or doctors, like they're going to business, they have a plan. Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember very clearly going to a college in Texas and meeting women who were studying fashion merchandising. And Mm. I just thought, wow, I did not know that you could make a career in fashion. You know, to me at that point, I just thought clothing was something you bought and you wore, but I never understood the industry behind it. I didn't know it could be a career. And that was, that was like a light bulb moment. Like, oh my gosh, there are other women who are doing this that I always pursued as a hobby. Mm -hmm. Um, I enjoyed shopping and I enjoy studying fashion trends, but there's a program for this. So did you start over your studies and... I did. Going to study. You did. <laughs> oh. <laughs> at the time, I, you know, I went to, I got my undergrad degree in biology for four years. And then I looked up programs. I found one in Los Angeles at FITM. Mm-hmm. Um, because I already had my undergrad, I could just go and do one more year and just kind of, and not do all the general stuff. But I got my associate's degree in product mm-hmm. development from FITM. Ah, oh, this I was like, 
did she leave midway? Did she start like what? It was like, I'm listening and I'm like, mm, this is so meaty and good. <laughs> it's like, yeah, but you know, it's so interesting because that immediately to me indicates that you weren't just curious about it, but you really wanted you wanted the nuts and bolts of it. And this is something that you wanted to truly get into because for yeah. you to come through with your degree and decide, I'm going to go back and, and do this in a completely foreign feel at that point in comparison to anything that you were studying before, that's my takeaway from it, that yeah. you were willing to put that in. It was a light bulb moment. It was like, it, I remember feeling passionate about something for the first time in mm -hmm. a long time. And I remember also after I had already applied and been accepted to, to FITM, my parents, you know, still very concerned. They were supportive, but concerned. <laughs> <laughs> um, and w since I had my degree, they had actually asked around um, and helped me secure an interview with the pharmaceutical lab out here in LA. Mm -hmm. Because again, they wanted me to have a backup. And I remember still going to interview for this job at a pharmaceutical lab thinking, well, at least, you know, fashion really isn't the thing I could I could put on my lab coat and go do yes. research for this pharmaceutical <laughs> and I remember walking into that interview and like you know kind of going through the motion and doing it but just not having one ounce of excitement about mm -hmm. that. that that lab life that was not for me I knew that was never going to be my life I, I yes it could be security and it could be comfortable but there was nothing sparking that so I just jumped into fashion school. I had no idea. I mean, I moved across the country. I moved in with three roommates um, mm -hmm. and did school, which I loved. Every every course I took in fashion school was exciting. And I, I knew I knew that was what I wanted to do. I know that feeling. And it's just it just feels like you're breathing differently when you're in your space of passion. It just feel, yeah. it doesn't feel like a struggle, even though it requires like a lot of work, a lot of dedication. You breathe differently when you're yeah. in your in your true space. So you went to school for fashion as well. Mm -hmm. And then you got into the fashion industry. What was that transition like for you navigating your way into fashion? I mean, it was so still not an immediate, like jump into success, I guess mm -hmm. you would say. But at least I yeah, I got a job right? I got several, several different jobs. And there was some level setting, you know, I think everybody thinks you just go to fashion school, and then you just land your dream job. But it wasn't like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had to work uh, while I was in school. And my first job was working retail, just like any other person at the mall, I worked for BB at the store. It was but it was in Beverly Hills. Mm -hmm. It was um, on Beverly Drive. And it was my first like I never worked retail in high school. But I I think it is one of those things that sounds so unglamorous, but it is the foundation to learning what this industry is built off of. Mm -hmm. You know, it is working with clients and kind of understanding how things work in a store, understanding that retail is not just selling clothes, but it's a business. It yeah. is around sales goals, profit numbers. If there's strategies that go into the design and the merchandising, the mm -hmm. layout, like everything detail of that store is planned out and it's not just like a haphazard coming together of of clothing tell us a little bit about what was your role in the fashion industry as you moved from your first job with bb and getting into your other position how many years did you dedicate to that 
Okay. Well, I quickly realized that working in a store was not for me. I did it for a little over a year, year and a half. And I realized that being on my feet and working with customers was not what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was a valuable lesson. So I transitioned from that, actually moved down to Orange County, where I got a job with St. John, which is a luxury brand. Um, But at the time, and maybe still a little bit, the demographic is an older woman. A lot of people joke. It's like Hillary Clinton's pantsuits. Um, (laughs) but it was a great company because their product was great quality and Mm -hmm. you learned a lot. So my job there was actually in, um, they call it technical design. So I'm not, uh, our job was to make sure that clothing fit. It was really understanding Mm -hmm. clothing, a development process and a construction process Mm -hmm. because we would get samples back from our factories and we would put them on fit models and we would have to tweak details here or there. And I, I, again, this is something I don't think people know, but clothing, especially in the luxury world goes through so many rounds of fittings. Mm-hmm. Like you don't just make a pattern and just start sewing clothes. You have to put them on a, a fit model. A fit mm-hmm. model is a person who actually gets paid to try on clothes all day long because mm-hmm. they are considered the ideal measurement of an average customer. Mm-hmm. And you are tweaking small details. It could be a quarter of an inch on a sleeve length or a sleeve opening or a button placement or, you know, how a fabric interacts with the lining fabric might not be quite right or shrinkage in one fabric may be different from another one. So it's a very, very technical business sometimes of constructing a garment and knowing exactly what precision needs to go into making every garment perfect. Wow. That's so interesting because many times when we will see like the behind the scenes, um, if they are showing, you're just seeing everything happening at such a fast pace, but you're not realizing that every single element of the garment, someone is in that position. That's their job and they have to execute, especially when you have companies um, with such a large scale and with such a reputation that has to be upheld. Many times when we look at pieces, it's so easy to say, like, why the heck does this cost so much? Like, there's no reason on this planet why this should cost so much. But when you get into the the inner workings of some of these brands, you understand because there's so much that's put into the construction itself for you to have that true appreciation. It's like engineering. It actually is like engineering and government. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and that is also the difference between a top that you're going to buy from a fast fashion brand versus mm-hmm. a luxury brand, you know? And yes. Yeah, it is every detail that you don't think about. But the, I mean, there's a science, there's actually fabric science. I had to take that in, in at Fitum. You have to learn about, you know, how silk is different from cotton and wool and uh, man-made fibers because they all react to things differently. Mm-hmm. You can't like throw one fabric with another fabric and expect it to to work all the time right um, it's yes it's that's a business it's a so science it is a science and it's technical and um it's it's not easy to do and it wasn't fun <laughs> <laughs> okay so this leads me to my next question you had an amazing run and you were really in the fabrics you were in the makings of fashion and that's a tremendous place to be because now, I mean, even in this in this conversation that we're having, you've opened my eyes even more to additional layers that are happening behind the scenes in the construction of every mm-hmm. little piece that we're seeing had to go through something. But with all of that, um, what was your reasoning for deciding to step away from the mainstream of fashion? 
after the technical design job, uh-huh. which I did for St. John for about a year, and then I moved back to LA. Part of it was I didn't want to live in Orange County anymore. Too. <laughs> <laughs> As a, a, a girl in your 20s, Orange County was not happening. Uh-huh. So I wanted to come back to LA. So then I started a job with Guess, and it was a Guess where I transitioned from technical design into the buying department. And that is actually where I found my fit because um, the buying, the the job of a buyer, I think often is confusing for people because they don't know Mm -hmm. what they do, especially when you're a buyer for a large corporate company like Guess. It's one thing if you're a buyer for a boutique and people kind of understand, well, it's your job to pick out the clothes that go into the store. But large corporations also, you know, they have a design team, but they also have a buying team because the buyers are the ones who control the business side. Mm -hmm. Um, And I quickly realized this was the perfect fit for me because buyers are kind of a balance of being right-brained and left-brained. You have mm-hmm. your creative outlets in that you get to work with the design team. You have you get to participate in the creative process, but you are also running the business. You are in control of the numbers. You are responsible for hitting the numbers for, mm-hmm. um, you know, deciding, you know, if you're the top spire, you get to decide what tops go into the store. You decide what colors we're going to offer them and then how to buy those colors. Like, are you going to stand for, you know, black is probably your number one selling color, but you also want to buy this top in red, but also Mm -hmm. green, you know, depending on the season and the design. So it's all really, it was, it was energizing for me to be able to be creatively involved, Mm -hmm. but I always, I also know I'm not a true designer. Like I would never want to be a hundred percent on the, just the creative process. Mm-hmm. I lived and thrived off of the fact that I could be creative, but also like me knowing I'm good at my job was knowing that we were hitting our numbers all mm-hmm. the time coming mm-hmm. in on Monday and seeing those bestseller reports and knowing that the things I put in the store were either flying off the shelves or maybe not. Uh-huh. <laughs> so wait, before you go on, because I heard you say the top buyer and you mentioned the buying team. So mm-hmm. how was a team broken down? Did you have people that were specifically dealing with just tops, just oh, dresses? Yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. For a big company like that, you do have a full team. You might have uh, leaders over several departments within that team. But yes, there was definitely a tops buyer, a bottoms buyer, a denim buyer, a dress mm-hmm. buyer, an outerwear buyer. Like every department kind of has their own buying team. And with that team, you have a head buyer usually and some sort of associate or assistant, depending on the size of the department. I mean, Guess is a denim brand. So obviously their denim is going to be the largest uh, featured mm-hmm. department or focus of department, but every department has a team and those team members have to work together. So again, if you're the bottoms buyer, the tops buyer, you have to make sure your items go together. Yeah. You, you know, it's, it's a partnership and a, it's, it really is one of those things where it takes every member of the team to make it come together because if the tops don't go with the bottoms, then you're not selling outfits. Right. And same thing with like, you can't have your tops compete with the dresses. Um, Mm -hmm. And this is also where it comes back to being technical because the technical length of a dress starts at being 32 inches long. So if Mm -hmm. you're the top spire and you're buying tunics and your tunics come in a half an inch too long, it becomes a dress. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, it's a whole, it's a whole thing. It's. That's amazing because it's again, why I love having these conversations because it's such an eye opener, but then it also creates so much more appreciation when you're walking into a store or there's a brand that you personally love and appreciate because then you can 
look at all of those layers as you're looking at the pieces and knowing that, hey, the buyers took this into consideration. The brand took this into consideration. For me to love it this way, it's not just by happenstance. It's very deliberate. Oh, very. Um, it's, it's so much work. And it's honestly, it's one of those things where you feel like you're putting out fires all day long. <laughs> um, it's little, it's funny things now looking back like, well, this top, you know, it's approving colors because mm-hmm. you can order tops and sweaters and dresses and jeans all in black, but they might come in five different shades of black. Mm-hmm. And then you, you don't want one, you know, you don't want your top to look a tiny bit more red, but your bottoms to look a tiny bit more blue. You know how that is. If yes. you get five that are black, none yes. of them actually match each other. Yes. So, um, <laughs> that is like a constant fire you're putting out. And then also with deliveries and shipping and manufacturing, like mm-hmm. things that come in late, things that come in early, and then they don't go with the things that you've ordered to go with them. But this is also, this is what I loved about it. At the time, it was so crazy, but there's such an energy behind this business. And when you're good at it, like you are making things happen mm-hmm. and you're thriving off of that energy mm-hmm. and you're like living for the next moment. And it's so fast paced because things are always changing and it's like there's new deliveries that are coming in all the time and there's you know it's it's going very very fast which is why it's called fast fashion and uh, (laughs) i am listening to you talk about it and i can feel your energy and like the the excitement in your voice i can tell that this is something that you absolutely loved even on the most chaotic of days I really did and so I worked in buying for over a decade mm-hmm. for several large companies out here in LA um and so that's this kind of just takes us back to your original question of then what happened because yes I loved what I did and at the time it felt like yeah, our sole job was to make customers happy. It was to mm-hmm. offer customers things that they loved, that we all loved, and get them to buy clothes all the time. And it was so fun. It was literally just um, a snowball, like more, more, more. What what mm-hmm. more can we offer? What more can we sell? What more can we do to get people to buy more clothes? Mm-hmm. And then I uh, got married. I had... I I got pregnant and um, I always thought I would go back to work. But after I had my son, I actually decided I needed a little bit of a break. Mm -hmm. Things things changed when you become a mom. And um, so I stepped away from my corporate jobs and for the first time just had time to like think and try new things and Mm -hmm. do different things. And somehow at that time was when I started paying more attention to the environment and climate mm-hmm. change. Again, when you're a mom, you start worrying about the future and you start thinking about things. And I remember going to a lecture about climate change and kind of always knowing it was a problem, but not mm-hmm. knowing exactly how bad it was. Mm-hmm. And there was one very eye-opening lecture I went to. Um, and and then I also started reading things about the fashion industry specifically and the impact that we were having on the environment. And that just, it was like a punch in the gut because mm-hmm. I realized that what I had built my career off of, what this entire industry has built careers off of, is a, it, we're the number two polluting industry in the world. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and that was, it was, um, yeah, I guess it was just a, a huge shock and made me a little sick because we didn't talk about that. We didn't know. Do you feel like that 
was the moment or that was like the event that shifted your complete perspective on on everything the impact of fashion it was it was you know again like in the 90s and the 2000s and the team like we were talking about the only thing that we've ever really paid attention to was like child labor you know everybody Mm -hmm. Child labor was a problem. Mm-hmm. Nobody wanted to be responsible for that. So you have your factories sign a piece of paper saying that they're not using child labor and there's an occasional inspection, but nobody really knows. But mm-hmm. tell yourselves that it's fine. But in the environmental impact, nobody was talking about that. Nobody, right. It's either they didn't know or they just weren't paying attention because... Mm-hmm. We certainly, we never thought about how much waste goes into our business. Um, you know, you're, we're thinking about dollars and cents, but we're right. not thinking about how our cheap fabrics, our cheap dyes mm-hmm. are toxic to these mm-hmm. communities mm-hmm. where we manufacture the goods. We're not thinking about the garbage that we create when we buy, you know, tops every single week and then we discard them and treat mm-hmm. them like trash. Mm-hmm. We don't see that. It goes into the water supply. The dyes are seeping into the grounds. It's starting from the cotton. Just, you know, yeah. even if we think, oh, it's just cotton, it's natural. Yeah. Well, cotton is being grown in these countries that were never meant to grow cotton mm. so that we could get it cheap. These farmers are using pesticides and getting cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, that we can have $3 t shirts. Yeah. And that's, that's tragic. Yeah. I remember when I started to discover deeper because my love for fashion as well goes well back into my young days. And it wasn't um, for me flipping through the magazines. I was so curious and intrigued by the constructions. And I'm also, I'm from Jamaica. So I'm an immigrant and growing up there, it was, I was around the seamstress and the, the dressmakers and the tailors and stuff like that. So that's what was so intriguing to me. So my love for fashion was deep in construction and then how it evolves and how it comes together. Mm -hmm. And that was from, again, such a young age. But as I got older and started hearing the stories about the garment workers and then reading about the kind of jobs and the the environments that they're working in, um, it kind of touched me in a different way because I know that when you move from another country and you're trying to make a living and starting and stuff, there's many jobs that you do that a lot of people will look down on. And there's many environments that you may work in just to make ends meet that um, a lot of people would turn their nose up at, you know, so when I would hear these stories and stuff, it just, it was very close to home. Mm -hmm. And thinking that the mothers are out um, working in unsafe environments, working around on like extremely unhealthy chemicals and for so many hours in the day and still not even making a living wage. And um, so it's that just blew like my whole fashion truck upside down (laughs) where it was like, you know, you just can't turn a blind eye when you hear these things and you're hearing these stories coming from literally the people who are having to go through this. And right. humbly going through it. And this happens in Los Angeles. It's like yes. you know, people think that unethical labor is just a problem mm-hmm. of developing countries, but actually factories in Los Angeles mm-hmm. like, regularly get flagged because they are not paying their laborers. 
it's embarrassing. Yeah. You, know, you think made in USA means so much. And sadly, that's just not the truth. When you have that information and that knowledge, then you do end up looking at clothes differently. Mm-hmm. For me, that's where it was. It, yes, it was such a huge slap in the face. Like, oh my gosh, you are so inconsiderate. And I've always just thought of fashion being a fun thing where mm-hmm. I buy what I want to buy, wear what I want to wear and feel good about it. I mean, that was a, that was a 20 year old, you know, not realistic, very sheltered, um, earlier version of me. Yeah. I feel like these conversations are important because so many people are just going through life and if fashion and all these things are just not their area of interest, many people don't even know what's going on behind the scenes or don't even have the opportunity to slow down that, you know, luxury of slowing down to find out how things are made and what's the process. They're just trying to get by. They're trying to make ends meet. Yep. They're trying to take care of themselves or take care of their families and make it from one day to the next, keeping a roof over their head. So all yep. of these things are just not even on the table. So it's not a matter of like deliberately, you know, turning an eye or turning their head. It's just it's just not information. I mean, here it is that even being inside of fashion and, and beauty and all that stuff, mm-hmm. many times the people who are working in there, you are also on this rigorous schedule and just going through and head down doing your job and making sure that things are happening that a lot of the information you're oblivious to as well, because everything is so deliberate as you are working within the companies and the inner workings within the companies, um, the mass consumerism that takes place and the, you know, consumer consumption, is this like a training that's a conscious and deliberate consideration that's happening within the fashion industry, like training the consumers on how to think about clothes, treat their clothes, mm-hmm. buy it, and how to dispose of their clothes so that they can continue buying. Is this attention to the psychology of like a consumer, a deliberate marketing strategy? Absolutely. Um, yes, because it's it's all about business, right? It's yeah. people who are focusing on the now. They're not thinking about long term. They're thinking about profits right now they're thinking about how can I grow my business how can I be more profitable how can I you know just make more money and Mm -hmm. just it's not just the fashion industry of course I think that's just like the economy and um, people in general Um, you know there is I think always something about focusing on now but Mm-hmm. The fact is, we can't be that selfish. We have to plan for the future. Mm-hmm. We are not, or you know, we can't be that selfish. We just need to think about what we're doing on every level. And mm-hmm. I talk about being a conscious consumer a lot. And it's not just about your clothing. It's being conscious of your food and mm-hmm. your interactions with people and yeah. your every choice you make in your life um, so that we can make this world better. Because mm-hmm. isn't that really... Shouldn't that be our responsibility? We'll yes. Be a better place for the next generation. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is that, again, now we have, sometimes I joke around, I'm like, we have the internets and we have the Googles and we have the, <laughs> the, yes. ac- the easy access to information. Information is really in our palms every day in our yeah. phone. And so now I think with it being so much more accessible, if it, if our interest is peaked enough and our heart is tugged on enough, there's so much information that we can find out. And then there's also 
the great plus is that there's also so much information as to how we personally can start to make changes or adjustments um, or just open up our eyes more and more to what's going on. It's just little by little. Like I always say, it's not about um, perfection. It's about progress. And it's not about judgment. It's about support. So it's like supporting each other as we're going through our journey and not having judgment that you're like, way down the road on your sustainability path and this person's yes. just starting. You know what I mean? Everybody wow. is going to do it differently. Everybody, yes. they might feel inclined to one particular area of sustainability and they can't cover all areas. But right. if we're doing little by little by little, each individually by ourselves, it doesn't have to look like anybody else's sustainability path or what they're doing. But we are making a difference with our intentions and with our consciousness. And that's all that it's about. You know, it's funny. I go back and forth because yes, of course, I am so right there with you. And I'm like, yes, we don't need to be judging or shaming. Mm-hmm. We all need to be going down our own journeys. We need to be respectful. But at the same time, some days I go through major eco grief. I'm like, oh my gosh, that person used a plastic straw. <laughs> like, What are they doing? You know, and I uh-huh. really sometimes have to like, Talk, talk myself down. No, you know what? That's fine. That person has solar panels. I don't, <laughs> you know, it's. <laughs> I have to remind myself because I do. Otherwise, I panic sometimes. I get into, and I think a lot of people go through eco grief. Like we're just so worried every time we see a news article that's saying yes. we only have ten years left to make a difference. You know, yes. like, oh my god, we need to shut down everything and. Mm-hmm. Um, it's easy to get on a bender like that. and But yes, we need to focus on ourselves. We need to take a deep breath and just be conscious mm-hmm. and not judge. And sharing. The thing is that sharing information from a kind heart makes such a big difference. Because if someone doesn't know or if someone knows something or they under, they kind of understand it, like their perspective on fast fashion versus slow fashion or their perspective mm-hmm. on using, you know, plastic straws versus paper or metal straws or whatever it may be, it may not hit them or they may not have the same understanding or the same um, empathy or concern about the effects of it. Uh, but I feel like I and I have seen I'm sure you have as well, where there there can be some situations where there's a lot of browbeating and there's a lot of like judgment and all of that kind of stuff where what ends up happening, unfortunately, and which becomes heartbreaking is that you end up turning the person off and closing them down, which is the complete opposite of what we should be doing as we're trying to, you know, do better collectively. And so it's, it's, but then on the other hand, I mean, how many hands do we have, but the other hand, (laughs) then it's like, you're also passionate about wanting to be sure that people do have the knowledge. So you're trying to get that knowledge out there, but it's again, all about the delivery. The delivery will make the difference on the results. Because like, you know, every time I see somebody wearing somebody, something cute and I'm like, Oh, where'd you get that? And they say Zara and it breaks my heart a little bit because I loved Zara Mm -hmm. and I I broke up with them many years ago. Uh And sometimes I want to tell that person or ask them, oh, do you know what, you know, is behind that company and all of the best fashion? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, yeah, you don't want to shame people. You don't want them to feel bad. So yeah. it's a way of bringing things up and educating people. Mm-hmm. And also, like, yes, I never want to shame somebody, like you mentioned before, who is just trying to get by. And yeah. 
can only afford inexpensive clothing yeah. because yeah. they are trying to feed their families. Mm -hmm. I never want to judge a person like that. You just want to know that you are making the best choices you can. Yeah. So if you cannot, if you can afford to not buy fast fashion, are you making the right choice for you? Um, mm -hmm. Because that is the, the, the truth of it is, you know, wealthy people shop at fast fashion brands all the time when they don't. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't want to judge them, but I yeah. want them to know the choice that they're making <laughs> and the options that they they have. Right. Yeah. And then the thing, too, again, with this platform and, and outside of uh, my show here, just in my life, it's just a matter of showing I'm more being an example by how you're living that. Okay, some sustainable brands are completely outside of the budget of a lot of people. And so showing that, okay, there are other sustainable options that are affordable that you can also consider as you're, mm -hmm. you know, choosing to make your shopping trip today and you're heading to the mall, you could head to the thrift store, you could head to the resale store, you can, you know, look at the alternative plans, there are, you know, clothing swaps, there are different things right now during the pandemic, probably not as much as what was happening before. But that that's such an important thing too, where you're not just um in this space where it just seems like really one track because it's yeah. it's such a unique story for so many people that showing the options and the alternatives so that yeah. they can choose for themselves um right. is really what's important so what um you and I clearly can talk for hours on this one <laughs> we're like flowing like water we have a lot on this you have this quote, um, you never stopped loving fashion, but you had to find a better way to do fashion. You wanted to fix the problem in your way and make sure that this is something that you are offering to the world as well. Yeah. So yeah. how did sustainability influence your decision on how you re-entered and operated in fashion? Yeah. So, so, okay. So much here. Um, I, number one, quickly realized that I was not meant to be a stay-at-home mom. I love <laughs> raising my children and it was such a privilege to do so for a few mm -hmm. years, but I was um, mentally unchallenged and felt like, you know, I came from a corporate background and I, I felt like I needed to do something mm -hmm. was part of it. And then the second part, yes, was just my my pure love for clothing. Like I am that person who, if I put on a good outfit, I feel so much better that day. Like mm -hmm. I, you know, you can tell, you can't live in sweatpants. At least I can't live in sweatpants. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I love what clothing can do for a person. I mm -hmm. think that every woman deserves to feel her best. And like, I, it makes me so happy when I can dress a person and they just walk out looking and feeling great. Mm -hmm. So I understand what positives clothing can do for us. Yeah. And that involves having change. Like fashion is an art. It is changing. The, the trends exist for a reason. Um, you know, it breathes new life into into our our homes mm -hmm. i just i just think there's a better way to do it instead of buying clothes all the time and disposing of them i you know i started renting my clothes a while back for mm -hmm. um, for starting with special events and then eventually just starting to rent them for my daily everyday needs you know for, mm -hmm. for work meetings for whatever and i just thought this makes so much sense because I can get everything I want from these clothes. I wear them a few times and I give them back and then I, I get new things. Other people get to wear those clothes. And logically it just made sense. Mm -hmm. 
So I thought, well, you know, yes, there are, of course, other big rental businesses out there, but there's not a niche rental business here in Los Angeles mm-hmm. where, because part of renting, I think, is hard when people don't know what they like. They don't know what's going to fit. You can mm-hmm. order things online and then they can show up at your house and they don't fit you or you don't actually like the way it feels. And then and then you're sending it back and then you're not really you don't feel good and you're also wasting transportation back and forth and Mm -hmm. wasting money. So I thought, what if we had an in-person rental opportunity where people could come get styled, try on their clothes, make sure that they actually like them and get the benefits of renting where you get to experience and uh, experiment with trends and colors. And I thought about this and I thought about this and the thing is, I'm not naturally an entrepreneur. I've, you know, I've worked for corporations and I'm a great worker, but mm-hmm. I do not know the first thing about starting my own business. But the the idea was there and I just thought about it for so long that eventually I said, I need to at least try. And part mm-hmm. of it also was having two children at this point and knowing that I wanted to set an example for my son and for my daughter mm-hmm. that, you know what, failure is not the end of the world. And honestly, it was kind of a selfish thing for me. I just thought, well, if I could start a business where I could have access to clothing every day, just walk out my door, <laughs> put on whatever I want that day. Uh-huh. What if I like, how amazing would that be? Right. <laughs> so I talked to a friend and I said, let's do this. Let's let's start a business. And mm-hmm. it was crazy. But we thought about it and we came up with this name, the Fix Collective, mm-hmm. um, because that's what we wanted to offer. We wanted to offer women their fashion fix because I do think sometimes clothing can feel like a drug. It, you know, it gives you that high when yes. you feel good, when you get that new thing that makes you feel so good, it gives you that fix. Yeah. And we wanted women to have that, but at the same time, we wanted to educate them and give them a path to this climate fix. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is how the Fix Collective was born. That's amazing. Especially because I have this background in product development, in technical design. I know how clothing fits. I know how different brands fit. Like I can Mm -hmm. look at your body and tell you, okay, this brand is going to fit you this way. This brand is going to fit you a different way. So yes, I am trying to offer something that is much more personal um, where you actually, you know, walk out feeling like you, you are happy. You know, one of my clients, she's an artist and she's had art shows recently and she comes and gets styled for her art shows Mm -hmm. so that she can put on, you know, her best face and she is, she can sell her art confidently and look like the person that she wants to reflect, you know, and and she even walked away and she's like, oh my gosh, this was so fun. I totally get why you picked this name because I totally bought a high right now. (laughs) That made me so happy because that's everything I wanted to provide for people. Yeah. my dream country. Okay, so in um in 2020, uh, according to the study done that was done by the US Chamber of Commerce, the pandemic disproportionately impacted the health of women-owned businesses. And um that's just like uh, so many businesses, but again, mm-hmm. women-owned businesses were really hit hard. And then in April of this year, um Luke Perdue is his name, an economist at Gusto, he stated that a lot of attention is being put on the companies that didn't succeed or the impact, mm-hmm. the negative impact on it. But um, he was also stating that there's like less attention that's being put on the huge spike in new businesses within the past year in particular in the e-commerce section and 
the majority of these businesses are women-owned businesses. So you're functioning and operating during one of the historic times in our lives with the pandemic. How has this impacted or altered the plans that you had Hmm. or have for your business? Wow. Well, yeah, we registered our business in January of 2020. Mm. So literally went into that year thinking, oh, this is, you know, this This is going to be interesting. We're going to do this, but Mm -hmm. like no idea what to expect, but certainly didn't expect uh, the pandemic. Yeah. So yes, we registered the business in January. We decided to have our first um, rental kind of pop-up party in February. Uh, Mm -hmm. It invited about 20, 30 friends over, had a library of clothing and it went great. And then literally two weeks later we were shut down so wow it was it was it, uh, yeah right like still oh. talking about it. it's so wild like what yeah. the heck is and it's still going on mm-hmm. um so obviously it forced us to pivot like everybody yes. that was the magic word of 2020 yeah. and when nobody has anywhere to go the idea of renting stuff just didn't make sense you know everybody was in their sweatshirts and um just trying to survive and be healthy mentally and physically and everything mm-hmm. so i mean i tr- i try to always see both sides of every situation um and the time the downtime gave us time to focus and mm-hmm. of course recognizing that we were in a position of privilege we weren't building this business to feed our families this was something we were doing for pleasure and for kind of you know it was a mission based business mm-hmm. so i had the luxury of of taking some time um we spent a lot of time trying to build up infrastructure for our e-commerce site um We also had time to think about strategy. We had time to think about like, what could we do differently? We experimented. Yeah, we we didn't have a website when we launched the business. So Mm -hmm. we spent some time learning about that because I don't know the first thing about building websites. I I learned (laughs) a lot about website lingo, uh, what it all means. And Mm -hmm. honestly, it hasn't been all great. It's probably been more terrible than great. Um, Mm -hmm. We also thought about a second side of the business is you want to rent your fashion items because those are the things that it makes sense to rent. You know, you mm-hmm. want you want to wear a trendy piece a few times and then you're tired of it. But there's also a whole side of your wardrobe that you do kind of need to live in. You know, you, those sweatpants and sweatshirts, yeah. your jeans, your t-shirts, so your loungewear, the stuff that you're working out in. Like there's a whole side of your wardrobe that actually is meant to be basics, meant yeah. to be long have the foundational pieces yeah yes we we call it a capsule wardrobe so Mm -hmm. there are foundational pieces that every woman should have and those are like a great piece of denim you know great t-shirts some great like blazers some sweaters um and we really like to teach people how to dress from the the bottom up so that Mm -hmm. you can build with those foundation pieces and then you can swap out the fashion pieces and it just opens up all the options but like if you have one great like black pant black dress some good jeans a couple basic blazers t-shirts and button downs like you can make tons of outfits out of those Mm -hmm. but it's Mm going to be a little boring i mean not going to lie you can do a lot with neutrals and staples um and some people some minimalistic people do great with that that is not who i though i need i need the color i need the trends 
So, but this is where we show people you can, you can have it all. You buy your basics and you buy them from eco-friendly mm-hmm. brands. So that's where we went out and sourced all of our brands that we sell. Like we have denim brands who, mm-hmm. you know, pride themselves because they don't, they don't use um, as much water. You know, they say it takes 2000 gallons of water to make a traditional pair of jeans, yes. which is enough water for a human to drink for 10 years. So mm-hmm. that. The fact that, you know, there is a better way to produce denim without using the toxic chemicals, without, you know, without um, wastage, without, uh, or, and also paying your laborers and everything. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. every brand that we sell is targeted for, for a specific reason, because it, you, your jeans, you're going to wear for years. It doesn't yeah. make sense yeah. So buy them from a better brand instead of, you know, the traditional denim brands who are not paying attention to this stuff. Mm-hmm. T-shirts, same thing. Like you can again buy that three dollar T-shirt, or you can buy a T-shirt that was consciously made out of sustainable um, methods and materials. So we offer one side of the business that's the eco-friendly basics, and then we mm-hmm. offer the second side, which is the fashion rentals, mm-hmm. and it all comes together, and you can have it all, but overall, just be a conscious consumer. The fun part. This question is, <laughs> I consider this part the fun part, the sourcing. <laughs> Do you have a specific approach or strategy when you're selecting or um, weeding out the kind of style of inventory that you choose for your boutique based on your clients? That's where it comes from the buying experience. Mm -hmm. When I was a buyer, you know, I was regularly going to trade shows and going to LA market where you meet all of the showrooms and the sales reps and all the brands. And eventually, you, you know, most of the people in this business, um, and that is how I found the brands that I wanted to carry. First of all, mm-hmm. the brands that I wanted to sell. And then the brands that we rent, it's kind of more a, a personal taste thing. It, mm-hmm. it comes from my uh, viewpoint as a stylist. It's, it's brands that I know are great quality and great fit. So I would never bring in anything that I don't personally believe in or something I wouldn't personally wear. Mm-hmm. And so that's just the the reflection of what you see in our rental gallery is a little bit of my personal taste. Not everything. I'm not going to say I would wear every single thing in there, but at least mm-hmm. I can envision that piece looking great on somebody. Yeah. Yeah. How do you keep your selection fresh? Like how for your clients, like how long do you keep the pieces on the <laughs> rack or how like handling Based on like season or trends. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, we definitely, um, we have a lot more clothing than what you can see right now because it is filtered out to be seasonal. So we mm-hmm. have our spring, summer things out right now. And again, our business is only a year, a year and a half old. And the rentals mm-hmm. really only started in May when people were leaving their homes again. Yeah. So we it's all part of the trial and um, error part of in your business is knowing yeah, how many times can somebody rent something before, you know, it just becomes too worn? And obviously, mm-hmm. we will have opportunity, like people can buy our inventory if they fall in love with something. So many of my clients do, they, they rent something, they're like, I love this, I'm going to wear this for years, I would rather own it. Great, you can purchase that piece. And so mm-hmm. we are constantly bringing in new inventory, um, and kind of selling off the older things mm-hmm. um, after they've been worn a few times. And yeah. Yeah, like I said, it's not a it's not a science yet, but we are figuring that part out and we'll just have to see one day at a time. And I think it's really great the way that you're doing it with having the rentals on one side and 
the sustainable options of purchasing those foundational pieces because the reality is that not all things should be rented or bought used. <laughs> There's just certain things that you just, you kind of want to go new on that one. Yeah. Like shorts with sports bras. I mean, I think people actually do. There are like rental programs for active wear out there. For me, if I want to sweat in it, then I'm just going to want my own. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need bonding of the sweats. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, yes. Okay, so many people, of course, feel that like shopping sustainably, it's a conversation that's continuously being had, is shopping sustainably mm-hmm. is very expensive and it's a luxury and mm-hmm. um, it's not accessible to everyone to be able to just go in the most sustainable way. Do you have thoughts on that conversation or that concept that, you know, it's a debate, it's a debate that's mm-hmm. out in the air right now. What are your thoughts on that? I have a lot of thoughts about that. Um, I, first of all, I think we need to stop thinking about the, the clothes, you know, that are expensive because, well, the fact is there are clothes that are made ethically and there are mm-hmm. clothes that are made unethically. It's not right. even always just about sustainability, but there are people who are not paid to do this mm-hmm. and there are people who are paid. So it's not expensive just to be expensive. It's it's maybe more costly because the laborers are actually getting paid fair wages. So that's how I would like people to start thinking about it because I think it's an important viewpoint. Yeah, But also there's always options. And that's kind of like what we were talking about before. There's always a way to be more conscious about your decisions because you can shop secondhand. We can like, there's so many great secondhand options at all levels from Mm -hmm. Goodwill, to the real, real, like, (laughs) so there's designer secondhand and there's like everyday secondhand. And the fact is I, I shop at both. I love Mm -hmm. Goodwill and I love the real, real. And if I'm going to buy something, I will always go buy something secondhand before I buy it new. Um, Or if I can't rent it for some reason. Mm -hmm. So there are just options. There are swap events with your friends. And I'm, again, nobody needs to do this perfectly. If you buy one thing that's fast fashion every once in a get once in a while, I mean, you do you, but Mm -hmm. the fact is that you have to know what options are out there and um, make the best choice possible for you. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. As long as we're doing that, then, you know, and, and you know what, people say it's more expensive, but if you're comparing the denim brands that I sell to every other contemporary brand, denim brand out there, it's the same. Yeah. It's actually not any more expensive. And it, I would say it's less expensive than, you know, these premium denim brands who yeah. are expensive for whatever reason they are. Um, same thing with these active brands, that girlfriend collective, is an amazing activewear brand who is getting so much attention because they are, you know, not only using great materials, but also size inclusive and really just conscious overall. I mean, their leggings are 68 and $78 versus mm-hmm. a Lululemon that's over a hundred. Yeah. So when it, it really comes from perspective too, obviously if you are struggling to put food on the table, you're not going to spend a hundred dollars on leggings, no matter who they're from. Yeah. But, if you are you if you are that customer who is already shopping from these premium brands, you, there is no reason to explore other options. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Again, it's a shift in the thought process because what you 
what you have as certain pieces in your wardrobe. Sometimes it's important to probably look at it as your investment pieces because the goal is to try to get pieces that we not only love, but pieces that we can hold on to for such a long time that will make it through the washes and the dryer or being hung on the line. We have to look at our own consumer behavior. You know, we can't Mm -hmm. put this all on the industry. We have to understand as consumers, we have been trained to want all of this new stuff all the time. Mm -hmm. And every time we want a new to buy something new, uh, let's ask ourselves, why? Why do I feel this urge? Is it really Mm -hmm. because I need something new? Is it because I'm depressed about something else and I need to just buy something to make myself happy? You know, is it because I feel like I need to impress this certain person? Mm -hmm. Is it because whatever, you know, like there's so many reasons that we shop where we maybe don't need to shop. Um, And that's where the consciousness comes in. It's, you know, looking at uh, your evening habits. Are you the type of person who lays in bed and scrolls through Instagram and just like responds to every ad you see? <laughs> or sale alert? It's, you know, yeah. if you're going to buy something on sale, ask yourself, do you really need that item or are you just buying it because it's on sale? Mm-hmm. And, you know, this whole revenge shopping, you know, when, when the, in May life started to open up again and people uh-huh. were talking about how we haven't shopped in so long and this whole revenge shopping culture, we were going to come uh-huh. back and full force. That's terrifying to me yeah. because we <laughs> but don't shop not- our revenge. <laughs> probably not the most, <laughs> the most intentional. Well, you may be intentional about your revenge, but it might not be the most conscious and, um, you know, responsible right. way of going about anything. But I strongly, I strongly believe in, the psychology of fashion and how fashion impacts people and how people use fashion to make them feel a certain way, just the same way that, you know, wearing certain things can make them feel a certain way. I feel like the buying process of fashion makes people feel a certain way in that moment. And I think that, you know, that ties into a lot of people's buying habits. That's the, the, the chemical high that you get. Exactly. You're like, oh my God, I just scored this thing. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's the slowdown. It's the slowdown, not only in how we're spending, but it's the slowing down on how we're um, thinking about the pieces that we want to purchase in that moment that we are purchasing them. So tell me, what have you fallen in love with the most about your business so far? Oh, oh my gosh. Well, it's, uh, again, for me, it's making people feel good. Mm -hmm. So it's when people come in, when women come in and they want, you know, they're going to go on a trip or they're just maybe have a special event and they just don't know what to wear. And also when they take chances, I Mm -hmm. love, you know, people get so stuck in their ways with clothing and what Mm -hmm. they think looks good on them. And I love being able to kind of force somebody to try something new. (laughs) Mm -hmm. and they realize oh my gosh that does actually feel good on I do actually like this um I I want women to be empowered and when you can see it in their faces Mm -hmm. that's the highlight for me Uh, you know people I think sometimes worry so much that a stylist is going to judge them make them feel bad or Mm -hmm. be superficial I am not like that at all I just want people like and I know that something that makes me feel good is not necessarily going to make you feel good because Mm -hmm. people are different like we just have to find the right things for us um and ultimately that's that's what I love I love yeah. styling have you or do you ever think about what your life would 
be alike had you not gone off to your passion and stayed at the medical path? <laughs> I do. I do. I, um, I think about, I still do every day. I'm like, is this the right path? I don't even know. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> you know, it was real, real interesting because you always look, you know, the grass is always greener, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so you never know really what the other side could have looked like, would look mm-hmm. like. Um, and there's every day I struggle with imposter syndrome and I'm mm-hmm. like, am I, am, do I know what I'm doing? Um, is this business just going to fail tomorrow? Is, yeah. uh, there are questions out there. Like, should I have just not done this at all? Should I do something more safe and mm-hmm. known? And there's no answers to that. I'm no. not going to lie. <laughs> the, sometimes it's just about taking a deep breath and kind of dealing with the moment, living in the moment, kind mm-hmm. of embracing the fear, embracing the unknown and knowing, you know what, there are days where I'm going to feel really good about this decision. And there's going to be days where I'm going to question every single thing and it's mm-hmm. going to feel crazy. Yeah. Um, and it's being prepared yeah, not all days are going to be great. You know, they say like, if you pursue your passion, then, then it doesn't feel like work. I mean, yeah. that's not true. There, it, It's work. It's still work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a lot mm-hmm. of parts about, about being an entrepreneur that, again, I don't know anything about being an entrepreneur. So yeah. there are many days where it feels like work. And you know what? Because it is your passion. You're actually driven on a higher level in wanting to see it succeed. So there, it is yeah. work. It's just, it's passion yeah. work versus disgruntled work. Exactly. And again, like those are the reminders, like, okay, set an example for yourself, set an example for your children, mm-hmm. but also yeah. having permission to fail because, yeah. you know, I think that's a big thing. Like, so, okay. Well, so what if it doesn't work out? At least I know I tried. And mm-hmm. um, that's an example I want to set for the future. Yeah. What words of encouragement or advice do you have or that you would share with anyone that's listening right now that's thinking of starting a business um, now, uh, maybe conflicted or at a crossroads in their career, like wanting to go yeah. towards their passion or uh, a major in college? You can talk on all of that, but like what word? <laughs> I mean, you're so inspirational with just how you've oh navigated gosh. yourself this entire way through. Um, Thank you. So, so funny because I don't think of myself that way. I just, you know, I'm just getting by. I think mm-hmm. we're all just getting by. Yeah. And that's okay. I think that's the huge thing is you don't have to have it all figured out. I mm-hmm. mean, if you want to start a business, like it's a good idea to have a game plan and to really talk that through um, and have some thoughts about it, but you don't need to have it all figured out. You just need to take one step. You need to do one thing. You could Google one, you know, one step of how to start a business. You could reach out to one friend and make a contact. You could register a business. There's Mm -hmm. so many little things that maybe force you to take the next step. And that's all we can do in life. You don't have to have it all figured out at the beginning. And I think that's the biggest takeaway for whatever age you are, 12, 18, 25, or 42, 50. I don't, (laughs) yeah. there's, there's no end in sight. None of us can know what the future is going to bring. So um, don't worry about that. But so find yourself a good support network. Like have good friends. Have people who are going to be in your corner and talk you off a ledge. What would you like to see the Fixed Collective doing for the fashion industry in about five years? Let's say five years. 
Well, again, I think we're kind of redefining this approach um, by educating people differently about how they can treat their wardrobes, right? Like, I, mm-hmm. I really do think that what we offer is different because we have rentals, we have resale, and we have responsible retail, which is mm-hmm. what we call it. And I don't, mm-hmm. I don't see anybody else in the market really tackling all of those fronts. Um, so I just, I'm just hoping that we can figure it out and scale to the point where we can offer those things regularly we have a permanent space Um, Mm -hmm. we have a staff right now it's just me and a couple friends who kind of volunteer their time sometimes (laughs) fantastic but I mean we're just at the beginning so I am hoping that uh, I'm hoping I can figure it out honestly Um, and I'm hoping that we can build something permanent where fashion feels like fun Mm -hmm. but in a much more conscious way yeah yeah, maybe even multiple branches. You know, mm-hmm. I could see it being like again because the the experience is so personal. It'd be mm-hmm. great to to have multiple locations and and where people can walk in anytime and feel like they can get the service, the uh, the styling, and a different selection of clothing. I mean, there's so much clothing out there. That's the one thing we never need to really manufacture a new piece of clothing mm-hmm. ever again if, from a needs perspective. But I'm hoping that we can all just find better ways to experience fashion and to try new things yeah. and to share our wardrobes. From everything that you've said with the Fix Collective, it sounds like it is an experience. It's more than just the clothes. You're creating a conscious and intentional experience as well. Yes, and that's what we try to do through our pop-up events too. If you're in the mm-hmm. LA area and you ever want to come, to, uh, you know, you can follow us on Instagram um, to get all of the news, but we make every event kind of special. We always mm-hmm. partner with somebody who's in, you know, in some sort of conscious um, arena like ours. It's not always fashion. We've had uh, mm-hmm. wellness brands come in and offer Reiki sessions or meditation or, you know, like food tastings and wine tastings. Like we really want to make this more than just clothes. We want women to feel good and have different experiences and um, just kind of make fashion fun. Mm-hmm. And I can speak because <laughs> I have been to two of Daisy's events. It is an amazing experience um, that you have created in this space. And I would love to see those multiple locations five years from now <laughs> or three years from now. I think that would just that would make my heart so happy to see that we spoke about this now and it's, you know, it's spoken into reality in the way that you want it to be. Because I, I think what you're doing and how you've gone about it and your background and passion and the dedication that you've put into the, reaching to this very moment in your life, um, that you are completely deserving of that. So I really hope that this is something that flourishes in the way that you see it that it's it's just in the fullness of what it's supposed to be but well thank you so much oh That's, you're welcome I hope I, I hope the same thing I hope you know and you motivate me you the way you're you know encouraging me and having me on as a guest it holds me accountable so yes I'm putting in this in the universe and yeah <laughs> let's, let's check in I know you mentioned it before but please clearly and directly let everyone know where they can find you and get the inside scoop on the private pop-ups that you talked about and be able to just like follow along and be a part of everything that you have going on there with the rentals or sales we would love we would love for you to follow us on instagram we are at the fix collective fix has two x's in it so the fix collective 
We also have a website under the same name where you can see some of our offerings that our, um, our eco-friendly brands are on there. The rentals are only available in person right now, um, but you can also sign up for our newsletter and get information more that way about our events and anything that's going on. Um, so I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, I believe they will. Your eye for style and fashion, I will say, is amazing. And um, everything that you have there, it just, it just makes you excited about getting into them and trying it on and experimenting, like you said. So you are well on your way. If you're wondering if you've accomplished that part of it, me as an outsider coming oh. in and seeing that, you <laughs> certainly have. Your selection is amazing. <laughs> thank, you. thank you. That means so much to me. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Again, thank you so much for being here. And listeners, if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, review, and share the skinny with others. Let us know your thoughts and takeaways and give us your feedback on moments that stood out to you during this episode. It's truly important to us and we continue to evolve and grow this amazing community. And it's so fulfilling and so uh, I, I mean I'm lost for words for so um, just so happy about the way that it continues to grow and if there are any topics or guests that you'd like to hear on the show please don't hesitate to drop us a line and you know reach out to me you can always find us on our main portal shazon.com and that's s-h-a-y season zebra o-n as in nancy.com and for all the goodies and the latest updates on the show, head over to Instagram and follow at Shazan. You'll also find, uh, you know, find that you can see a peek inside of the life of the voice behind the mic, which is mine. So <laughs> all that's happening over there at Shazan. Again, keep it simple. S-H-A-Y, Z is in zebra, O. And you've been listening to The Skinny Witch, Shazan. Thank you so much for sharing your time and light with me in this space where you are heard, seen, valued, and loved. Never forget you're beautiful and deserve to live a happy and empowered life. Meet you back here for next week's episode. Bye.